Let me uh, invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we'll be looking at the first 20 verses in the parable of the soils. It's commonly known as the parable of the sower, parable of the seed, or parable of the soils. I think parable of the soils is probably the best title, simply because it's the four soils that it's discussing and that we're supposed to learn about. So I know this is a very common parable. I've heard, had a couple people already tell me this morning that this was one of their favorite parables, so hopefully uh, we can learn together and glean some truth from God's Word. So before we, before we begin, why don't I ask you to stand and, uh, and we'll read this text in its entirety this morning. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4, verse 20 verses. It begins, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat, out, sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let me ask the Lord's blessing one last time. <clears throat> Father, we come before you again. And Lord, we acknowledge our helplessness apart from you. Lord, we beg your Spirit's presence to open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear your word, to understand it correctly. And Lord, I pray as the psalmist that we may see wonderful things from your law and uh, we may grow and change into the image of Christ because of it. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we get to take a little bit of a break from Sean's a message through 1 Corinthians, so hopefully our time here in this parable will, will prove to be productive. But let me just say, as I read through this parable, and I was thinking about this parable, I, 
this parable is really all about hearing. It's all about how the Word of God comes into our lives, how it enters our ear, if you will, and how we are to hear the Word of God. The word for hearing, listening or hearing, all those types of uh, phrases is used at least 15 different times in the text that I read. And this reminded me a little bit of Bose radio systems. I'm not uh, big and I'm not really up on all these radio systems, but I understand Bose radio systems are, are top line, top of the line, top class. But uh, it's my understanding in looking, in, looking into them in preparation for this message that Bose will conduct studies on sound waves. They will study how a sound reflects off objects, how it, what it does when it echoes off of something, how it enters the ear. They do all these um, detailed studies because they really want to produce a top-of-the-line sound system. So they are all about the physics of sound. They're all about the physics of hearing. But I, I submit that our parable this morning is more about a theology of hearing. And hearing is extremely important in the life of a Christian. And again, as I was thinking about this over the last while, I came across, a question to me was, what is the loudest sound that's ever been heard? And I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but in, in my just limited research of just doing some internet searching was in all the different lists that came up, at the top or very near the top of all of them was a volcanic eruption that took place in Indonesia back in 1883. And the statistics say that it, that it actually wiped out over 36,000 people it says that this explosion was considered to be the loudest sound that was ever heard in modern history, and it had reports of being heard nearly 3,000 miles away from its point of origin. The shock wave from the explosion was recorded on bar graphs literally all the way around the globe, and it said the energy that was released from this explosion was larger, was, was equal to 200 megatons of dynamite, which is roughly four times more powerful than the most powerful uh, thermonuclear weapon that we've ever detonated. So this was truly a remarkable display of God's glory in creation. Now, that may be the loudest sound that's ever been recorded. But I would submit to you this morning that the most powerful sound that has ever been heard is the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it enters a receptive heart, when it enters the ear of an individual who knows that he, he needs Christ. Because you see, only, it's only the gospel when, it, when we hear it correctly, when we understand it correctly, that it literally changes the heart of an individual. It gives them new affections, gives them new desires. Now, as I said, the importance of hearing is over and over again mentioned in Scripture. We could actually say that one of the marks of being a Christian, one of the characteristics or one of the descriptions of being a follower of Christ is that we are hearers of Christ or we, that we are listeners to Christ. We want to hear what he has to say. If you just consider Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So hearing is important there. Paul said in that famous passage in Romans 10 where he's talking about going out and sharing the Gospel and how, how blessed are the feet are those who go out and, and spread the word he's talking about. But he says there in the end of um, Romans chapter 10 that faith... He's talking about saving faith, the kind of faith that saves a person. He says, faith comes by hearing, by hearing the Word of God. So again and again, how important it is that we hear the Word of God correctly and that our hearts are prepared. So let me take a look um, at this parable. Let me start off by just describing you the setting. 
the setting of this parable. What, what was going on in Jesus' ministry up at this point? What would cause him to begin to start teaching in parables? Why does he teach in parables? Now, first of all, just the, the immediate context, the immediate setting here, geographically, he talks about that he's in a boat, he's out on a large sea of water. Now, we can understand that. We can, we can picture that in our mind. The reason he's in this boat, there's such a large crowd. He puts himself in a boat and just kind of pushes himself out, and he's not surrounded by all these people. And he can very easily talk over the water, and the acoustics of talking over the water would have benefited him. And everybody could see him, and everybody could hear him. So we have that immediate context um, geographically. But then if you consider his ministry and where he is at in his life and ministry at this point that he begins teaching in parables, just consider all the different responses that Christ has to his teaching, that, that people will give to his teaching. If you're reading through the Gospels, just taking the Gospel of Mark, you'll find out that there are people who hear him who are completely indifferent to what he has to say. They come, they listen, but they're just listening because oh, he's, a, he's another speaker that's coming around. They just don't care what he has to say, but they're going to listen. Maybe just because they want to follow him because of all the miracles that he does, and they think it's, it's neat, it's interesting. Maybe like the ones he talks about in John chapter 6, they just come because he, feel, he uh, does miracles and will fill their stomach. They want another meal. Have those kind of followers, those kind of hearers. Then you've got those who are completely opposed to everything that he has to say. They're, they're just listening to catch him in some kind of an error, something that they can accuse him of. And these are the Pharisees. And you have to remember that these were the most religious people of the day. And everybody around the, those, these areas, around these towns where Jesus, is, where Jesus ministered, knew that the Pharisees were the re- religious elite of the time. And you have those people who have absolutely no interest in him. They, they can't stand Jesus, and they want him to go away. And then, if you consider Jesus' family, right up into Mark chapter 3, toward the end, Jesus is there teaching, and the, and the, and the people that are listening to him say, hey, your, your family is here. Your mother and your brother, they're, they're here to get you. And Jesus tells him, who, who is my mother? Who is my brother? But those who listen, those who do the will of my father. But what's interesting is his family was coming to get him, it says, because they thought he was out of his mind. His family literally had thought that Jesus had just went overboard, that he was crazy. He had just taken this too far. They, they truly hadn't come to understand who he was. And so you have all these differing responses that are, being, that are happening to Jesus' ministry. So naturally, if you put yourself... In the, in the disciples' shoes. If, if you look where they're at, and here they are, they, they have to be wondering what's going on. We hear this man proclaiming to be the Messiah, the one who was promised to come, and he's going to build this kingdom. And we believe this, and we want to follow him. We hear his words. We love him. We, we love what he has to say. But yet, the religious people are the ones who should understand him and get it. They're against him. They think he's crazy. His family thinks he's crazy. And the disciples would be asking are we really following the right person? Is this, is this the right message? Who are you? So Jesus would go in then to his purpose of his parables, why he's speaking in parables. And if you're looking at, if you happen to notice verses 10 to 12, I'm going to jump around here just to get things set up. But if you notice verses 10 to 12 there, Jesus lays out his purpose for parables. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time because I just want to cover the four soils and the four hearts that are represented. But I just want to make a brief word about um, Jesus' purpose for parables. And if you can just remember one phrase, it's just two basic ideas, that Jesus' 
parables are to reveal and to conceal. He wants to reveal and bless those who have ears to hear. He wants to open up his message and his kingdom message and what he's about. But then at the same time, he wants to reveal or to conceal and judge those who are, have hardened themselves in disbelief. So Jesus is in effect drawing a line in the sand saying, the ones who understand my parables, they are on the inside. They're the insiders. The ones who do not, who reject it, they're the outside. He's drawing a line saying there's an insider and there's an outsider thing going on here. There are some who are true followers and there are some who are just here to see what I have to say, but they're not really interested in my lordship. They're not interested in, in submitting themselves to me. So this would have been very helpful for the disciples, wondering why there's so many different responses. Now, I would note a couple things that, that this teaching, this beginning to teach parables, as Jesus says, this follows right on the heels of Jesus' uh, description of the unpardonable sin. So you have these individuals who have seen everything that there was. They had the Spirit. They had Jesus Christ himself performing these miracles, and they have decided that Jesus is doing the works of Satan, and they're committing the unpardonable sin. So Jesus says, this is so severe that I'm going to begin speaking in parables. Now, also, well, let's let me say then, as you're looking at this, just keep in mind that a couple things that we want to take away from Jesus' purpose, even though this is honestly one of the most difficult set of verses, these two verses are very difficult to, to wrestle with. Each, he's quoting um, when he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God in verse uh, 11, then in verse 12, he says that they may indeed see, and he goes on. He's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 6. And that particular passage is quoted six different times in the New Testament. But every time it's quoted by the New Testament writers, it is always in the context of people who are in unbelief and in rejection. So the New Testament writers understand that when people are turning from Christ, they want nothing to do with the gospel message, that there is, that is what God has he's predicted. He knew this was going to happen. He's just leaving them, as Romans would talk about, turning them over to their own ways. So when we come to this, we just have to remember that this difficult stuff like this, we just have to remember to let God be God and He will do what He sees fit to do and He's a just and good God. And the other thing is, is just to always remember that the responsibility in Scripture is always given to the hearer for his rejection of what Christ has to say. So keep those things in mind. So just the purpose of parables is to reveal and to bless to the insiders, to those who really love Christ, who've had their heart changed and want to be a follower of Him, and then to conceal and even judge those who reject Christ. So that's sort of the setting. That's the parable, or the, the setting of the parable and then the purpose of the parable. But now let's spend the rest of our time looking at the significance of the parable as Jesus will um, give an explanation of what this parable means. Now, let me make two observations before we dive into each soil. First of all, just let me say that for any of us who are here, who any of us who are true believers, true Christians, that those of us who have realized that there was a Christ who lived a perfect life, who, who lived a perfect, obedient life in our place, who, who went to the cross and died in place of our sins. That we have seen that. We've recognized our own sinfulness. We've, we've seen that we were heading in one direction and we've repented and turned and, and ran to the cross and embraced Christ, wanting a new life. For those of us here like that, we need to remember that any of these soils, they may characterize 
any of us on any given day. So what I mean is when we look at that pathway soil, the hard-hearted here, we could, as Christians, we could still be characterized by that on any day. We might have some unconfessed sin. We might be irritated with someone in our life that we're not dealing with properly. And we come to the Word of God and it just bounces off our hearts. It just has no effect like it's meant to. But then let me also say that as an evangelist, that, that was more of an edification for believers, that aspect of what's going on in this parable. But also evangelistically, when Jesus is telling this crowd, this mixed group of people with the majority of them are not true followers of him, and he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he's meaning to evoke a response out of his hearers. He's wanting those people in the crowd to, to begin asking themselves, what kind of ears do I have? Am I truly hearing correctly? Am I a follower of Christ? You see, because even though any of these soils may characterize any one of us true believers um, on any given day, in the end, when we stand before the Lord at the end of our life, at the judgment, only one of these soils will characterize us for all eternity. And I, I must say that, as we'll see, only one of these soils is the true believer. The other three soils are characteristics of, of unbelievers, of false faith, of, of those who don't truly want to follow Christ. So I point that out because the importance of this parable is, in the understanding it, eternity is at stake. The eternity of our souls is at stake to, to understand this properly. So let's take a look at each one of these soils. So let's look at the first soil. And I've called it the pathway soil or maybe in, in reference to the heart, the hard-hearted hearer or just an indifferent heart. And what I'm going to do in each one of these soils, I'll give you the description that he gives early on and then the explanation. We'll read each text. But Jesus gives the description in verse 4, which says, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. And then down in verse 15, he gives the explanation. He says, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, just a couple things to help us understand this. First of all, just a word about pathways. Uh, it would, shouldn't be hard for us to imagine if you go back during this time, they didn't have roads like we do. They didn't have fences like we do. So whenever they had their blocks of property, they'd have them all blocked off by just pathways. So if they wanted to go from one town to another town or from one piece of property to another, they would just walk along these pathways and these pathways never got tilled up. They'd be, they'd be very similar to our roads, just packed soil, just like concrete, very hard. So you can picture this farmer walking down wanting to sow seed and as he's sowing the seed and scattering it as far as he can out into his fields some of these seeds would fall on this pathway and Luke actually in his account in chapter 8 of the gospel of Luke he talks about this seed being trampled underfoot so we know it's on the path but so it's, it's representative I said each one of these soils are to represent hearts individual hearts and this is the type of heart if I give a couple characteristics it's an uncultivated and unprepared heart it's, it's the type of person who just simply neglects his heart, neglects his inner man. He's not concerned with any type of heart preparation before he comes to hear the Word of God. It's just he's indifferent to the things of Christ. Um, it is, another characteristic could be that it's the type of heart that's hardened or calloused. And it's impossible. There's just no penetration that's able to be made. As a person continually neglects his inner man, 
It's just a vicious cycle. His heart just becomes harder and harder. It, it, it's, it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 3, this very pointed passage that the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, as he's, as he's warning these believers um, in this group of people that he's writing to, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. And then he adds this phrase. It's very important. He says, That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you have this neglect of the inner man, the deceitfulness of that. You don't recognize it, and it just hardens your heart. Now, it's also a characteristic of unbelievers, according to um, Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about unbelievers who are alienated from the life of God, he says, because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. And he goes on to say that they've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So that's a, a hard heart, indifferent heart. These people eventually become proud, obstinate. They're totally unresponsive to the Word of God. They're what the Old Testament would describe as a stiff-necked people. They refuse to bow their knee to what God has to say. They refuse to bow their knee to Christ. Now, this, this idea of being calloused, it reminded me of from when I was a child. When I was little and I was growing up, when I, I played outside all the time, I never wore shoes. Now, I don't know if this is common today, um, but when I was around, we just ran outside with no shoes all the time. And I got to the point where my feet were so callous, they were so hard, that I still remember... And my dad will still bring it up at times. When we would go places or someone come over, my dad would, would just tell me, hey, what, watch, he'd tell his buddy, watch this, have, have him go out there. Run across the yard. Now run across the driveway. And I'd run across rocks. I could run across the sand or rocks and run across the driveway. It didn't bother my feet. It was the same. I couldn't feel anything because my feet were just so callous and so hard. Now, that's very similar to the way people's hearts become. They just become so callous and so hard that the Word of God has no effect. When they hear it, they, they read it, it doesn't penetrate because they have allowed sin, unconfessed things like that going on in their life. It's a very um, scary place to be. Now, in this particular soil, it talks about Satan coming to take the Word away. And I would just remind us that every time the Word of God is being read, every time the Word of God is being proclaimed and preached, that spiritual warfare is taking place. That Satan wants nothing more than to distract us. To, however, he's, he's have all these different ways that uh, he can take us from the Word of God, that he takes the Word of God away from us. And I thought just of a, a few things that I jotted down. He might use distractions. He might use fear. He might use procrastination. When I say distractions, you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I've got so many things going on. I, did I turn the oven on for lunch? We've got company. Do I have everything ready for these people coming? And every time we start thinking of things like that, the Word of God is just being snatched away. Or you've got fear. You've got people here. What will my friends think of me if I really submit myself to Christ and I want to follow Him wholeheartedly? Won't they just think, let's think I'm a little bit weird and he's letting that fear come in. The Word of God is being snatched away. Or then you've got procrastination. You hear it? Yes, I know that's important, but I'll, I'll just do that later. Just like that. The Word is taken away. Now, let's take a look at the second soil the stony soil or I've called it the shallow heart or the superficial heart we'll see it has no root then eventually it ends up dying but Jesus gives the description of it in verses 5 and 6 he says other seed fell on rocky ground 
where it did not have much soil, and it immediately sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And then Jesus gives his explanation of what it meant in verses 16 and 17. He says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Just a couple comments as we begin. Just notice that it's a stony soil. So this, this is not referring to individual rocks or maybe some boulders that are just laying out on the ground. Farmers, of course, just like us, they would have known to take those out. What, what they're talking about, what they're talking about this, at this time, there would be layers, complete layers of stone just a few inches below the soil that would prevent a, a seed from really taking root. It would germinate, it would warm up, it could germinate and grow and sprout up, but there was no root that could develop because it would grow down hit that rock and just the roots would come back up and the sun would eventually dry it out and scorch it as it says. So, notice also that he, he uses the word immediately here two different times in this particular soil. This is the type of person, it's representing the type of person who when they hear something, it's just, they just quickly, yes, I want that, I, I hear what you're saying, and there's, they're, they're not putting any thought into what the gospel is calling for. Because Jesus, when he presents the gospel, the New Testament description of the gospel, it's, it's, it's you must lose your life in order to gain it. You must deny yourself, be done with self, pick up your cross daily and follow him. I mean, it's just on and on, these things that you must do and you must die to in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But these people are hearing just only half the message that, Yes, I want this eternal life. I want my life to be different. But they're not really taking into heart what it means to die to self. They have uh, a great enthusiasm when they first hear it. They have um, a great joy to take off. But they're like that long-distance runner who takes off sprinting. But just have no capacity to finish. Have no way to end. Now, this might be the type of person who, who the church has, has helped you do things for them, you, you help them financially, you help them, maybe they come in, they need some discipleship or some counseling, and you help them, and maybe you help them kick a really bad habit. They want, they want something different, and they're so excited about what the church has done for them, they just, they want to be part of it, but then in the end, they've never taken the time to really think about what the gospel means, what, what Jesus Christ dying in their place, and what it means to give their life to Him and submitting themselves to Him. They just don't consider that thing. So over time, they prove to not be true followers because they have only believed for a while, it says. Now, I should say that there is a category in Scripture. This is helpful for me to understand. It may be helpful for you to understand. There is actually a category in Scripture mentioned over and over again of those type of people who are what I would call temporary believers. That's this believer here. Um, Luke actually says when he gives the account that they believed for a while. Now, this is the type of person that, that James refers to who they say that they have a profession of Christ, but it's a dead faith. It has no works. They profess Christ, but they don't actually possess Him, if you know what I mean. It's, it's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians, where Paul in 1 Corinthians is in chapter 15, that will be coming there here one of these Sunday mornings, but he's talking about, he says, this, this gospel, which is of first importance, he says, and he talks about how Christ had died and he had risen on the third day and, and he was resurrected, all these different things that, that happened according to the scriptures. So this gospel's of first importance. But then he goes on and adds, 
if you hold fast to the word, unless you have believed in vain. So there's a type of belief that's not real. It's not a saving belief. It's just, yeah, I acknowledge Jesus, but they haven't really grasped what the gospel means. And the clearest explanation of this is in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It says that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But then verse 24 is very telling. He says, Jesus says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to hear wit- bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And what that is explaining is that Jesus knew that there was people who said that they believed in his name. But it was fake. It wasn't real. It wasn't one who had, who had said, I want to lose my life in order to gain it. And I want to die to myself. It was just, no, I want to I see what the next miracle is. Now, just a brief word that this, this immediate, as, as quickly as they embraced Christ, they just immediately fell away whenever it says what caused this was tribulation or persecution that came um, on account of the word. This is the type of person then who... They just, they, they say they love Christ and then all of a sudden difficulties and trials come into their life and they think, I didn't really bargain for this. This isn't what I expected out of the Christian life. Or, you mean that passage means that I must do this with my life? You expect me to live in this way because of this text? I, I didn't really think that's what, I, I'm not really into this. And the next thing you know, they're going. They're the ones who've um, not, not considered the cost, as Jesus would say. Now, if I could just say a word about trials, just very briefly. All of us go through difficulties. But difficult trials and hardships in life never, will never cause a true believer to lose his faith. He'll never cause a true believer to leave um, Christ. If you're going through difficult trials, those are meant to strengthen you, to draw you closer to Christ. That is why over and over again, when the writers talk about trials, like James, he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance and hope, all these different things. That's why Paul says in Romans 5 that we are to rejoice or exalt in our tribulations because trials produce in us endurance and hope. So just, just, just a reminder that trials never will take us away from Christ. Let's look at the next soil, the the third soil represented here, the thorny soil, or in terms of a heart, we could call it the crowded heart, we could call it a divided heart, or even a, a distracted heart. And again, as we'll see, eventually this soil produces no fruit and ends up being useless because it's a, it's a non-saving heart here. And Jesus gives the description in verse 7. He says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And then he gives the explanation in verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, if the last soil was a temporary, um, a temporary believer... This soil here is indicative of a worldly believer. And I'm using those terms in quotes because we know they're not true believers, but a, a temporary believer. Now, this is a worldly believer. This is the type of person who is, who is so busy with, you just fill in the blank, 
so busy with whatever it is, whatever it is that, that they're living for, that they never just show a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for righteousness. Now, there are three different thorns, if you will, that, that are represented here. Jesus talks about these, this thorny soil, and then he gives a, three different things in verses, seven, or verses 18 and 19. Let's take a look at each one of these little phrases. The first thorn is the cares of the world. Now, cares of the world, these are just legitimate things that all of us have. I describe this, I would describe it like this. This is just the busyness of life that we all have. Now, I was away, personally, I was away for a couple of days, and then as I come back home, it's, it's that to-do list that, that never goes away. It's, it's legitimate things like doctor visits or checkbook has to be, all these receipts have to keep, be putting into the checkbook, and it just starts to get out of balance, and I've got a whole stack. I, my stuff just keeps piling up, and these are legitimate concerns. It's, it's, the, it's the parents here, it's the moms here who have grocery lists that just never go away. We've always got to be going to the store. We've got lists. We've got all these things that can be taken care of. They are the cares of the world. There are those of us here who have children. And if you're like me, you have four, four children. Three of them got to be at three different places on one night. The next night, three of them got to be at three other places. It's just never ending. It's, it's just legitimate things. There's just legitimate cares of the world. But what happens is a true believer recognizes this, and we are in constant battle with our schedule. We're in constant battle with our schedule saying, I, I know these things are going on and I have some of these things I have to do, but Lord, help me submit them to you. I, I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to be in your word. I'm not going to let these things control me. But for those represented here in this soil, their whole life is just lived for the cares of the world. They never, they may profess Christ, but their whole life is just lived around all these things and the cares of the world just consume them. Now, Look at the next thorn, the deceitfulness of riches. Let me just say that, that riches are deceitful because they promise what they can never deliver. It's, and what happens? These people, they, they live for different things of the world. I just want to have a little bit more of this. If I could just have a little bit more money, if I could just have a little bit more land, if I could just have this or that, and that's, they end up, their whole life is consumed with those things. And, and that's why those, those men that have gone on before us would have phrases like, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Meaning, we have all these things out there in the world that, that we long for, that people will desire for, but we were not created for that. We were created to worship and honor and glorify God. But yet, those things pull us away. That's the deceitfulness of riches. And then that third thorn would be the desires for other things. Now, this is a very broad category here. Now, if you're thinking of these things and you're looking through saying, cares of the world, yeah, okay, I, I understand those are legitimate. I'm battling them. I'm doing fine. The deceitfulness of riches, that doesn't interest me. I, I, I don't have any interest in the things of this world. But desires for other things? I mean, who in this room doesn't have desires? I confess, I have desires all the time. I, I am always longing for something, always desiring something else. So this is a very broad category, and it's very broad for a reason. Christ wants us to know that, as I mentioned before, we are here to worship Christ 
And that's what we're to live for. And it's so easy for us to get just pulled away into all these different desires. And we have to be constantly submitting our desires to what would Christ have for us? What would He want us to do? Now, over and over again, throughout the Scripture, the Bible continually warns about the impossibility of living for the things of this world and loving God. It's an impossibility in Scripture. Matthew 6, verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the idea is that we are to have a single-hearted devotion to Christ. That is why Paul could say, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul, after he's lived a, a lengthy life at this point, a, a life of being a devout Christian, still, toward the end of his life, he could say in Philippians 3, this one thing I do, single-hearted devotion, this one thing I do, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or this is why James says that, we just simply says we cannot love the world. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, very succinct and very clear. He just simply says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Single-hearted devotion to Christ is what we're to have. It's impossible to love and live for the things of this world and love Christ. Now this reminds me of the story of a man who was wanting to propose to his girlfriend. He was wanting to be married. He wanted to marry her. <clears throat> and he went up and he started talking to her. And he, said, he said, listen, honey, I, I know that I do not have all the money that, that Joe Brown has down the street here. I know I'm not, not as handsome as he is. And I never, I'm, he's got this huge inheritance. He's got all this money. And I'm never going to have those things. I see him drive by in his nice car. I see the house that he lives in. I'm never going to have a house like that. But I want you to know that I love you with all of my heart. I want to be devoted to you. And I want to know, would you marry me? To, his, to which his girlfriend says, yes, I, I will marry you. I, I love you too. And a little bit of a pause. And then she says, but, but could you tell me a little bit more about this Joe Brown guy? So, and, and we laugh and, and rightfully so. But I think, sadly, she is a lot like many professing Christians today. Yes, I love Jesus, but I am not over with my love affair, with my adulterous relationship with the things of this world. I don't really want to submit to Him. I say that I love Him, but I don't want to give my heart and just follow Him all out. I don't want to abandon my life to Him. I don't want to lose my life in order to gain it. I refuse to do to do such a thing. Now, I want to spend just a minute here because the saddest thing about this soil is that this particular soil affects so many churches today. It's a description of so many churches, of so many people in churches today. These are the types of people. They're the ones who, who have good, I, I would even say great intentions. They're the ones who come on Sunday morning. They sit in the pews. And they're the ones when you talk to them, yes, I, I really want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to, be, um, I want to be the leader of my home. 
I want to I wash my wife with the water of the word. I, I want to raise my children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I want to be a leader. I want to be that, be that man. But, 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 but first, let me get married. Or let, me, let, me, let me get married. Let me get my kids. Let me get them raised. I want to do all these things. I, I need to do that first. And then I'll really get serious about following Christ. I want to get my degree. All these things I want to do. But I do, I do want to follow Christ. But let me do this first. This is the type of people that, you know, I do want to do that. I do want to follow Christ, but you know, our, we're getting tight in this house. And we need to add on. And our vehicle's getting old. We need to trade it in. It's only two years old. Our 2,500 square foot house isn't quite big enough for our two kids. And so we need to add on. But what ends up happening is in order to add on, in order to upgrade the vehicle, well, just for this season, just for a little while, I'm going to work some overtime. My work said I can take all the overtime I want. So I'm working 20 extra hours. And I end up just neglecting the things of the Lord. And what happens is that someday just never comes. I want to, but is always the answer. They end up proving that they never want to get involved with Christ or His church. They, they never demonstrate a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. And beloved, I, I have to say, based upon the authority of the Word of God, that these are the types of people that are being described here that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hell is going to be full of people who had great intentions. And that ought, to, that ought to give us a good warning. And can I and can I just speak to parents? Because this is where I live. I mean, this is I have four of those kids running around. My life is occupied with all kinds of things. But let me, let's just let me give you a warning. If your life is characterized by this soil, if your life is consumed with, if your schedule is dictated by and oriented around your own personal hobbies or the hobbies and extracurricular, acti- extracurricular activities of your children, let me, let me just give you a warning. All it's very likely that all you're doing is fertilizing the thorns in the hearts of your children. And as they grow up, and as you want to pour things into them, you want them to be involved in the church, and you're saying, why? Why won't they be interested in the things of Christ? Could it be? Could it be, beloved, that it's because of, of the way that we have raised them, the way that we have just so just done whatever their hobbies dictated? that we have just been feeding those thorns. We have just been planting them, fertilizing them, and now they have grown up and they're choking out the Word of God. Beloved, we just need to be warned. It's not worth it. The salvation of our children, our own hearts, the salvation of our own souls are at stake. So we must take it seriously. Now, let me just finish up here with this final soil. The good soil or we could call it the receptive heart, the fruitful heart. And Jesus gives the description in verse 8. He says, Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold 30, and 60-fold and 100-fold. And then he gives a simple explanation. He says in verse 20, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, just a couple characteristics of, of what is this true saving faith that's being represented here. Notice he heard the word. He hears the word just like all the other soils. 
But notice here it says that he accepts it. Now, this is the only soil that says he accept, that they accept the word. And this is not the, the type of acceptance that, you, that we think of today where we're the arbitrator, we're the decider. We kind of sit above things, say, yeah, I, I like that, or yeah, I, I don't like that. I'll accept this, but I won't accept that. This is the type of person with this accepting. This is the idea of, of a wholehearted embrace where you put yourself under the lordship of Christ. You put yourself under God's word and you say, I hear it, I believe it, I want it. I want it to dictate everything I do in my life. You have a, a love for the word. You're the type of person that, once, that Luke says they hold it fast. And you realize, like Peter says, like you have that desire like a, like a newborn baby wants milk. You have that same longing and desire for the pure milk of the word, it says, so you may grow by it. Now, that's the idea of accepting it. And then the other characteristic of this soil is that it bears fruit. Two comments. First of all, fruit is guaranteed in the life of the believer. That is why this is the only um, soil that characterizes a true believer. And we know fruit is guaranteed for a true believer out of John 15. Now, I won't go through all of that, but just know in John 15, it talks about abiding in Christ, the, the, fruit, the, the vine and the branches. But it talks about that if you abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit and thereby glorify your Father in heaven. It's all about fruitfulness. But then it also says in John 15 too that every branch, he says, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Meaning, no fruit is not truly a disciple. That's why this is the true Christian represented here. So, fruit is guaranteed. And then fruit will vary in each individual. It's 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. I, I think it'd be a description of some people are just going to have just bucket loads of fruit coming out of their lives and other people are 30-fold. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just that you are abiding in Christ, you're loving Christ, and, you're, and your life has changed. You're producing fruit. So one last question might be, what is fruit? Now, we could go through a whole list of things that we do, that, we, that we're in prayer, that we're in Bible reading, and we, we can categor, categorize those as fruits, and that's fine. But, and I think those are legitimate things. But just know, throughout Scripture, if you just kind of follow along fruit and the idea of fruitfulness, most of the time it ha- it's, it's, it's uh, keyed around some, some key words like repentance, obedience, and righteousness. For example, John the Baptist says, tells those people to bring forth fruits that are keeping with repentance. And what they're getting at in, in Scripture is that fruitfulness is always linked to a changed lifestyle. So that's all, that's all we're saying here in this passage, that if you're fruitful your life is going to be changed. It's going to be different. No one's going to question that you are a follower. They're going to see it. They're going to see your loves. They're going to see the way that you um, serve others, that you love Christ. That's all you want to talk about. Now, if I could, in closing, just give us a couple things to consider. First, know that it's right in Scripture to test yourself. Paul told the Corinthians, the Second Corinthians, test yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Peter told his readers, brothers, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election to make sure it's, it's real. Can I say, it's not weak faith that says, Lord, am I truly a Christian? That's the cry of a regenerate heart, a lover of Christ that says, Lord, I, I want to make sure that I am yours and I am truly following you. That's the cry of a strong faith. And then also just for edifying for all of us so that... Um, 
Every time we come to the Word of God, every time we come and sit under His preaching, can we take time to remember this parable and to remember that we need to prepare our hearts as we come to worship, as we come to hear a sermon preached, as we come to, to read our scriptures, that we are taking time to pray, to meditate on the passage, to, to purify our own lives, prepare our hearts, to make sure that when it comes, we don't have unconfessed sin. We don't have bitterness toward a spouse, toward a friend. That's going to cause that word to just not produce what God intended. So when you come, listen attentively, be teachable. We're not asking for gullibility, but teachability. What's the word of God have to say this morning? Prepare, guard your hearts. I, I would even encourage you, um, make it a practice to guard Saturday night. There's nothing worse than we take the world's idea of a Saturday night, we just stay up as late as we can, sleep in as much as we can on Sunday morning, drag ourselves into church, and we're tired. It's hard to pay attention because we're so wore out. Guard Saturday night, get plenty of sleep. Spend time in prayer. If the passage you know is coming up, read it. Meditate upon it. Prepare your hearts so that they will be fruitful hearts. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the time that we've had. And Lord, again, we are, we are really helpless without your help. And we need, we need you to soften our hearts we need you to prepare our hearts so that as we read your word it makes sense and and we can become more like your son Jesus Christ and Lord I do pray that this room would be full of fruitful hearts who who hear your word who love it who accept it who submit themselves to its, to your lordship and who would produce fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold who, who realize that they don't they haven't lit, you haven't lit their light, their lamp to put it under a basket, but you want them to go out and to show their good works so that they may glorify their Father in heaven. So Father, do your work in all of our hearts, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.